This is the Educational Triage Podcast. Welcome. We invite you to come along with us on an exploration of interviews, issues, and other exciting and relevant topics in education, especially alternative education. They say alternative education is a laboratory for mainstream education. Why? Well, join us every week and listen in as Philip Summers and I, Tony Hunt, jump in feet first to discuss issues that may affect our classes, students, communities, as well as our teaching. Please subscribe if you enjoy and find relevance in what you experience here. And if you haven't left a quick review, please do. We appreciate your candor and insights so we can improve as we move forward. Now, let's see what's on board today. And welcome back to Educational Triage. This week we have Joe McQueen. Hello. The author of Calming Young Minds, which is an incredible book. So, Joe, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us how you came about writing this Yes, my name is Joe McQueen. Um, I'm an alternative education principal currently, um, still still active duty as I like to think of it. So I've been in the field for almost 25 years. I've worked residential and I've worked in detention centers. I've been a, a drug and alcohol counselor. I started off as an LBS one, um, working with mostly behavioral students, students with some some pretty significant social emotional issues. And it wasn't till maybe six, seven years ago, I started developing different trainings on de-escalation and um, just understanding mental health. And uh, um, probably about five, six years ago, really started deep diving into restorative practices and how that looks. I was doing restorative practices with my kids back in the late 90s, early 2000s, but we didn't call it that. I just called it like family practices. So we kind of pretended like our class was a family and we did family circles and things like that. So after going to I mean, countless trainings on different different things, different techniques and things to use in schools. Um, I've been a trainer for, you know, all the things, uh, Handle with Care, uh, TCI, CPI, Safe Crisis Management, all those things. And I thought, you know, I don't feel like a lot of what's focused on when they talk about de-escalation is real life stuff. Like I'm in the trenches every day. And some of the things that you're suggesting I do, I think to myself like, hmm, I feel like there's some things you could do before that. So anyway, so I developed these trainings and I started doing them with uh, schools in the local area. I started doing some conferences in Illinois and then I did some national conferences and I applied for a national conference. It was Innovative Schools Las Vegas uh, last year, probably around, well, almost around this time. And uh, one of the guys who was a keynote speaker there sat in my session on de-escalation. Now, you know, when you go to a conference, you're trying to do a six, seven hour you know, training and they say you got 50 minutes. So you're really just sort of super superficial stuff like you know here's some quick tips hope you pick that up uh you know ask me questions later and so the guy asked me you know for my business card and i gave him you know i'm a principal so i gave my principal card and he called me when i got back to illinois and he said hey where can i buy your book and i said i don't i don't have a book man and he goes how do you not have a book and you're talking and and doing things on the national level and i was like i don't know i just send them my uh synopsis for my trainings and what it's about and for some reason, they say, OK, come along. Um, and so I show up and I do it. And he said, uh, 
you know, man, you should really write a book. And I said, I don't know what I would write a book about. I don't think anybody would really be interested in anything I have to say. And he said, well, you know, at the end of your training, your last slide, you had like six or seven trainings that you do at schools. And I said, yeah. And he said, do you keep those up to date? And I was like, well, I mean, yeah, you know, I uh, gear them towards individual schools and whatever they want and, you know, specialize them for what they need. And he said, why don't you take your top three and just put them in a book? And so, so I did. I, the following Monday, I sat down and I opened up all my slides and opened up all the research stuff I had. And I just started converting it to um, a narrative that you could read and that would make sense. And, and uh, when I do trainings, I share a lot of my own personal stories. And I also share a lot of scenarios of, you know, kids I've worked with, because I think it makes more sense. It's, it's, I don't like to sit and listen to a whole bunch of data and a bunch of stuff that like universities did and figured out. And like, can you tell me how you did this? Like share with me the last time you were in the trenches doing this. And so I put that in my book too, because I thought, you know, people want to know that this is authentic, that I'm not just a guy who Googled a bunch of stuff and did a bunch of research. Like I've been doing this in some of the toughest environments you can have for almost 25 years. And so that's what happened. Calming Young Minds was born and now it's available for people to buy and hopefully read and, and change their lens, their insight on how to work with kids. In writing the book, you have some anecdotes that are in there, and those must have been the ones that really stood out as you were starting to hone your craft, I'm going to say, in being a behavior specialist and then moving on and forward. And I think it was Philip who said that you treat kids as though and approach them as though they're actually human. Yeah, I think I, I was one of these kids, and, and I, I, I say a lot. In fact, I just I did a restorative circle with some staff members in our, um, the place I worked at this yesterday. And I said, you know, everybody brings, when you land in the world of alternative ed or um, even residential, I found over the years, we all have a story, um, something that drew us to those kids. And for me, I thought, you know, these kids are my people. I was a kid that was diagnosed with a behavior disorder. I was diagnosed as oppositional defiant. I was clearly ADHD. I could have been the poster child for that. Um, and I knew what it was like to be annoying to adults and have adults not want me around and, and be bothered by me. And, and just that hurt feeling of, you know, I just want to be liked. I just want to be okay. And you guys don't want me around, don't want to be around me. You know, looking back, I get it. I was kind of a difficult kid. And so I think that when I work with these kids, we, we forget this is somebody, somebody like this is it's, it's a human being. It's a, it's a little person or, you know, sometimes a bigger person and they see the world through a different lens than you. And it's not a bad one. It's not a better one. It's a different one. And we have to take the time to pause and step back and say, how can I help you? What do you need from me? Um, how can I try the best I can to see the world through the lens you see. Explain that to me so that I can be of better service to you. Because really, that's my job is to help you and to get you from one place to another place. And if I don't approach you like an individual and approach you like, you know, the human that you are and the person that brings all these things to the table every day, this backpack full of all these things, if I don't take the time to help you unpack that, then I'm never going to be effective. I'm never going to get to know you. I'm just going to be another adult that tells you things to do. We don't know the background of these students either, do we? Oh, gosh, no. And sometimes, you know, um, it hurts to get to know it and it's worth it. But it, taking that time to get to know that the human being, you know, I, when I first started teaching uh, behavioral students, I knew we're not going to get any academics done. 
until we can get regulated in this classroom. And those were all like weird things back in like the late nineties, early two thousands to be like, I need to have my kids regulated and feel safe and feel like they're comfortable. And then we'll get to the academics. So I would spend the first week of school just really getting to know each other, doing some family building, doing some team building, really unpacking some of those things individually with kids. And then when they felt safe and they felt like they could trust me and they felt comfortable, then we can dive into the academics because those things will come. They're all capable of learning. They're all bright, smart kids. We just have to get them to a place where they can start to learn. And I found that most of my kids, even the kids that were diagnosed with like learning disabilities, it wasn't as much a learning disability. It was an educational gap um, due to their behavior and due to, in my opinion, adults just not taking the time. They had these huge gaps in their education. And once I filled those gaps in, they were able to go out to regular classes and do regular work, just like all the other kids. Um, they needed support because, you know, high anxiety levels or stress levels or some, you know, like me, they, they had a hard time staying on task or uh, would be a bit defiant. And so we would just teach them skills around that and work with that in the classroom. But I mean, they could do their seventh grade math, they could do their seventh grade English. They, that, that part wasn't a struggle. It was just how to sit in a classroom and regulate themselves and adapt to that setting. And it was surprising that as, as high as I would raise the bar, they never didn't meet it. They met it every time. And I thought, God, my kids are probably brighter than most of the other kids in this school. So, you know, towards the end of the year, I thought I got the best kids there is. Like, I'm probably lucky. Let me ask you a really quick question, because it's something that keeps coming up. And that is a lot of the kids have these learning gaps when they come to us, and some of them stopped learning somewhere back in elementary school and you're secondary and yes. I work secondary. I started out in preschool, but then I worked, I went up to secondary. So how do you, do you do any kind of an assessment on a kid, like doing an individual learning plan when they come to you, which is separate from an IEP an individualized education plan, but a learning plan where you can chart out or maybe assess what those learning gaps are and then maybe figure out how do you work to fill those gaps with the student? Tell me more about that. Yeah, we do individualized optional education plans and it's optional because they're in an optional educational environment. So every kid comes in, we have some canned goals that every kid has, like, you know, show up 90% of the time, um, you know, don't hit people, don't hurt people, don't bully people. We have all those basic goals for every kid. But then we dive in individually. And typically, like when we do an intake, we'll have the principal or counselor, we'll have the kid, we'll have their parent, and we'll sit down. And I like to ask the question, like, why do you feel like you're with us? Give me your side of it. You know, what do you think got you here? Um, and then dive into that. And, and it gives you a good idea. If they're like, you know, because I'm a bad kid. I'm like, well, you're not a bad kid. That's let's get that off the table. I don't think you're a bad kid. Um, you may have made some poor decisions. So how do you think those decisions affected you being here? Or we have kids that are say like, you know, I'm just way behind on my credits. Well, how'd you get there? What happened that got you there? When did you first start to fall behind? Um, and really talk to them about what their picture is and how they see the situation and then build goals around that. And a lot of times when I ask kids like, you know, we're going to set behavior goals and they're not here for a behavior reason, they get worried. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa I, I don't have any behavior problems. And I have to explain to them, behavior is positive. Like one of your goals can be that I'm going to reach out and ask for help more. That's a behavior. It's like all behavior serves a purpose. When I'm hungry, my behavior is to eat. You know, it's not a negative behavior. 
when my wife does something that I enjoy, my behavior is I tell her I love her, maybe give her a hug. It's not a negative behavior. I said, so let's not have that connotation that all behavior is negative. Behavior is just a response. It's how you do things. So let's set some positive behavior goals. Yeah, you're not a problem student. You're a little behind in your credits, but it sounds like you struggle self-advocating. Let's make that one of your goals. Let's have you self-advocate and talk about what that looks like and have you practice it. And we can do all kinds of stuff to give you a stronger voice to advocate for yourself. So we do a lot of those individualized things. Um, and we have, uh, you know, yeah, we do assessments. It's a lot of it's online assessments and things like that to look at where they fall and um, what gaps, if they're recognized, we can fill in and, and things like that. Are they pretty receptive to all of this when you're going over it with them? And then when they have to put pen to paper or whatever they're doing in order to learn it, are they more receptive because you've already gone over this and there's an agreement with them? Um, I think it depends on the kid. They're all different. You know, um, some kids look at me and say, you're full, you know, think you're full of crap. Like, yeah. I don't yeah. believe you a, a thing you're saying because so many adults and so many educators have let me down that, you know, you're just, you, yeah, I don't need a lecture from you, man. Um, but that's the, you know, that's fine. We'll do something superficial and get something on paper. And there's a lot of times mm-hmm. I go, look, we're going to put these things down, but you and I are probably going to meet a few times and talk about these things and explore this a little more as we get to know each other. But for today, if we can just get some surface stuff down, some basis, basic stuff down, let's let's do that. And then over time, you know, yeah, we do open up and they do start to realize that, you know, in my book, I talk about being a solid object, the 10 things to be a solid object. And over time, they realize that, you know, okay, you and and most your staff, you know, none of us are perfect, um, are pretty solid objects and we can come to you and we can, uh, you know, depend on you. And and it makes it makes a huge difference. So what. Do you think is the most important thing that a teacher needs to know just going in cold their first day of school? That it's not about you. It's about the kids. Um, They're going to say things. They're going to do things. They're going to act in a certain way. And your job's not to take it personally because it's not personal. It's their response to how they see the world. And if something is a little off kilter, that just means you have to build a better relationship. I tell teachers all the time, you know, go home and look in the mirror and just embrace all your physical flaws and all your physical characteristics, because that's visible to all people. Everybody that sees you can see that when a kid gets angry, when a kid lashes out, they're going to pick the easiest thing they can. And that's going to be your physical flaws or your physical appearance. You know, I said, I know I'm not very tall. I'm a little portly and I have gray hair. So when a kid calls me a short, fat old man, I can't get mad. I'm like, I mean, that's pretty apparent not that tall, kind of chunky, and I'm old. Like, those are just observations that are reworded and maybe not the nicest way, but I'm not shocked by those things. I'm not going home and looking in the mirror and going, oh my God, I am kind of a short, chunky old guy. Don't take it personally. It just, it is what it is. And I tell people, you know, if you're a person of color, they're going to pick that. If you're tall and slender, they're going to pick that. If you're short and chubby, they're going to pick, they're going to pick the easiest characteristic. And that's because, you know, they don't know anything about you except for that. And then as they get to know you, that'll become less, less of a deal. But the biggest thing is to build relationships. Don't take it personally. And keep in mind that when a kid is in crisis and a kid has an issue, it, none of it is about you. There's an issue behind that issue. And you are just the safe person to lash out at. Why don't we learn any of this in teacher training school? 
I have no idea. I've, I've, um, I gave my book to one of my daughters. She's in college at uh, ASU. She's going to be an art teacher. And she just took her first intro to special ed class. And so I, I gave her a book to take to her professor. And I just said, hey, from one sped teacher to another, I love you. Thanks for taking care of my daughter. And she started reading through this. And she said, I should use this as like a study portion for my class because nobody ever teaches you this stuff. And I thought, well, you know, they teach us how to write lesson plans and gather data and, and read test scores and, you know, do all those curriculum based things. But there's an art to education. It's not a science. It's, it's there's an art to it. And they teach you the science part, but they never teach you the art part. And the art part is going in and checking yourself at the door and giving 100 percent of, you know, just your patience and building relationships and being willing to work with kids through. Pro they don't teach you any of that. I think I mean, it's been a long time, but I would imagine they probably touch on trauma at some point now in teacher school. I don't know. Um, but I definitely think when I go out and I train, I do these trainings for teachers. The big feedback I get is, like, I could have used this my first year. Training. And I'm like, well, you didn't get it, but you got it now. So you can change mm -hmm. now. You can't go back and rewind the five or six years that you've been teaching, but you can completely change this now. I think one of the sweetest things I was ever told is a guy that um, is a pretty old guy. I'm not sure why he was still teaching. And uh, he came to my de-escalation training and, uh, Afterwards, he came up to me and he said, hey, this is my last year. I've been doing this a while. And I thought, yeah, you kind of, you know, like an old fella. And he goes, I've done a lot of professional developments. And this is probably the first one that I ever felt like is going to change the way that I do things with kids. I've only got a couple of years, but I can tell you my last couple of years are probably going to be way different than all the other ones I've had. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I was like, well, hey, man, you know, that's a bummer that you never learned this before. So was there a change? Um, I went out a few months later to do um, restorative practices with him. And he did say, he's like, oh, things are way different. He goes, for me personally, I've just learned to check things at the door. He's like, I don't get as angry. I don't get as mad. He's like, I just look at them and I kind of feel bad. Like, man, there's something going on here. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's the whole thing. Um, there's something else going on. And he said, you know, I coach as well. And so I started using this a lot with my players and looking into like, you know, why are you so angry? Why are you upset? This was a pretty small thing and it triggered a huge reaction. And he's like, I just think about there's got to be more to that and I need to dig into it. And right. And I'm thinking about Bruce Perry when he talks about this one student and his relationship with the teacher and the student thought the teacher hated him. The teacher thought the student hated him. And basically it was the kid had issues with his father. And the kid was in a foster home and it's because, because the father was a drunk and he was an alcoholic and he was really, really abusive, but he would still visit the kid and he wore old spice in order to cover up the alcohol on his breath or mm -hmm. on his person. And the teacher used old spice antiperspirant or deodorant and the kid smelled that. And so just that scent yeah, it was a triggering what, event for that child. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so there was, you know, sometimes it's just an olfactory kind of response. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it might not be something that you even think about. So it's really amazing how little things that we do 
can make a huge difference to the people around us. Yeah. And, and I think developing trust with kids, um, you know, I, I think back to the, the example you just used, you know, if you, if that, that adult had built a relationship with the kid and put aside the fact that he thinks the kid hates him, um, they would have been able to dig into the idea that like, look, man, this is what my dad wears. And when you wear that old spice, it triggers me. And then the teacher could have done one of two things. It could have said, Hey, we all get triggers. Let's work on coping skills around triggers. I'd love to work with you on that. Or they could have taken, you know, a different route and just said, there's a million different deodorants, man. I'll pick a different one. Like if that triggers you, I can totally meet you halfway there. You know, I can use something different. Actually, it was Perry who discovered it because he sat in on the meeting between the kid and his father. Mm -hmm. That's where he started trying to figure out what it was because the father had been brutally abusive and the kid with the teacher had these violent outbursts. So the teacher was trying to stop having these violent moments from the kid because he figured that he was the reason he was doing something. And so he kind of backed off. And so that's what destroyed the relationship. And because I think he was a little intimidated by the kid in -hmm. some ways. And, you know, but it's nothing like, let's say, that teacher who was pepper sprayed for taking the phone away from his student. Yeah. That's, that's in the viral videos. And just a couple of weeks before, the same teacher had been punched in the face by another student for taking away the phone. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right there, you have a contentious relationship that's not really a productive one. Yeah. I watched those videos and I thought, you know, I mean, I'm, I feel bad for the guy getting pepper sprayed and punched. I mean, um, but approach is everything. And just watching his approach on the video, I thought, hmm, I, I wouldn't approach that that way. I mean, I get you got to get the cell phone away, but there's a lot of different ways to do it than to snatch it out of a kid's hand because they see that as aggressive. They see that as disrespectful. And because they're teenagers and they think impulsively um, and they don't, you know, they're not rational thinkers because their brain just hasn't developed to that point yet. So a lot of, you know, they're driven by emotion and impulse. And when they feel disrespected, especially if they feel disrespected in front of a group where they can lose face, they're going to respond in a, in a, in a big way. Um, and that might be pepper spraying you. Um, not an appropriate way. It's not okay. I'm not saying it's all right, but totally avoidable depending on your approach and your ability to communicate and build relationships with kids and just take the time to explain to them and have a conversation around things. It was it was pretty amazing, though, to see the comments on the video with teachers telling the guy to press charges and just a number of things that were really reactionary rather than being proactive and trying to figure out what it is that they need to do and in order for this not to happen again. Yeah, I think I think we're kind of on a, in a we're stuck in a loop where I think education isn't shifting as quickly as it probably needs to. I think there's a lot of ideas around this this thought that there should be punishment, harsh punishment. People should, you know, pay in the most extreme way. And I mean, we look at just in in a country in general, not to get political, I'll keep it super quick. We have the largest prison system in the world. So we're built around this long-term idea that's been around for a hundred years that when you do something, there should be something harsh that happens to you because you should be punished. And I think that punishment isn't nearly as effective as learning from your behavior, learning how it affects others, learning to make a change, really analyzing your behavior. I mean, we, we talk a lot about um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, like deeper cognitive thinking. Um, and I, I, I talk about it in, in my book and, and, and in trainings. Um, we really want kids to think deeper. Metacognition. Metacognition <laughs> is the big thing that we talk about. You know, let's te- teach kids to think metacognitively. Now, developmentally, that's really hard for them because they brain development wise. But it's great practice because as their brain starts to develop and they can start thinking better metacognitively, they already know how to and the processes and sort of the uh, all the pieces are in place. But I think really looking at that same approach on behavior is what happened? Why did it happen? What was your part? What can you own? What could have you done differently? Let's talk about what that would look like if it happened again and in the future. But that needs to happen with the adult, too. You know, what happened with you? What was your part? What can you own? What could have you done differently? And if the adult and the kid have that conversation and they each own a part, they each say, you know what, I probably could have done this differently. And especially the adult, what they go, you know what, I see that. And you know what, my approach could have been different. I could have taken a different approach. Um, It's okay. It's okay to say, I may not have taken the right approach or even, God forbid, I'm sorry to a kid. You know what, I apologize. I probably overreacted. I bring a lot of stuff to the table every day. Been a rough morning for me. You weren't the right person to do that on. I'll work on my stuff. I'll own my part. And then the kid is easier for them to own their part. And it's a higher level of trust because they're like, oh, my God, this adult admitted that maybe they could have done things differently, which makes me respect them and see them as a human. What do you say to teachers, though, who would balk at that? Because that would mean that they would be relinquishing their authority with the student? Well, I would ask them, why is their authority so important to them? What, what really, I mean, is, as an educator, did you, did you become an educator to be an authoritative figure? Cause we need prison guards. There's plenty of, you know, opportunities to do prison guards. Um, and they need to have an authoritative figure cause they're dealing with some, some difficult people. So why don't you go do that? And then you can have authority all day and carry all kinds of little special things that, that, you know, enhance your authority and, but you chose to be a teacher, which I'm sure that you were passionate about educating kids and working with children. So at what point did you trade in compassion for authority? You know, mm-hmm. you can still be somebody who holds kids accountable. You can still be somebody who, you know, makes kids do what they're supposed to do. But you can do that through relationship building and you can do that through understanding and you can do that through conversations. If they're afraid they're going to lose their authority, then they probably already lost their respect. The kids don't respect them. If they're running on authority, the kids haven't respected them for a while. How do you interview and check for people who have empathy rather than the people who interview really well and tell you what you want to hear? How do you know that you're getting an an empathetic adult who can build relationship with, with the students and still they know their material and they're able they're going to be able to do really well with the students on an academic and personal level how what how do you know oh that's so hard um because you know you have to find a a happy medium you don't want somebody that's super empathetic and super easy and the kids are just going to run all over them and there's not going to be any sort of um, structure in the classroom they're not going to hold kids accountable because they just want to be their friend and they just want to hang out with them. And it's like, you know, you have to have boundaries. Um, but you also don't want somebody who's going to come in and, be, you know, just lay down the hammer. Um, I think if you can find somebody that's right in the middle, I can typically train them to understand 
how to how to walk that line. Um, and it takes time. And and I've worked with you know, working in residential is always interesting because you know, um, there's a high level of turnover, and and that's just residential everywhere. I've worked residential in Illinois and in Arizona, and it's just it is what it is. It's a hard job. Um, and I've worked with like the very authoritative, you know, drill sergeant kind of people. And I've done a lot of conversations with them. I've even kicked them out of like dealing with the kid for me. Like, why don't you go away to the adult? Like, I got this. Um, and a lot of conversations around, look, dude, like you got to change your approach, man. Like, this is not okay. It's not healthy. You're setting the kids off. And then I got to deal with the aftermath because I'm going to kick you out. But I've also worked with the people where I'm like, okay, you can't let the kids do that. And like, well, I told them to stop and they didn't. Well, then you have to be a little bit more authoritative and let them know you can't do that. This is why these are the rules, you know. So it's hard to find that middle ground. But I think if you can find somebody who's compassionate and um, willing to learn, you can mold those people into that. It, it takes a while. I, I, I mean, um, it, it takes a couple of years and I, and I have a small teaching group. I only have like, you know, we have 140 kids. I have about 13, 14 teachers. Um, and we do a lot of training, a lot of conversations, a lot of one-on-one. -on -one. I go in and do a ton of modeling. I'm in the classrooms um, a lot. And, um, and I deal with all the behaviors at the beginning of the year with the teacher with me. So they can say, okay, look, this is how, this is what I want you to do. This is how, and then I talk to them afterwards. Like, what did you notice? What did you see? You know? Um, and I'm not perfect by any means, but, um, I'm definitely mellow and I've definitely been doing it long enough that it's just kind of second nature. Um, I can't remember the last time a kid made me angry. I just, I just don't get mad. I was like, Oh, you got a lot going on here. Let's figure this out. <laughs> but what's the difference between where you work and let's say a mainstream school as far as discipline goes? I think the biggest thing that we, we take time. We, we make the time to stop and figure things out. Um, we're not a machine. And so we know that it's far more important for my teacher to take time out and work with a kid and figure things out and be able to bring things back around full circle. That's, you know, if, if we don't get all of math done today, so be it. Math will still be there. It's not going anywhere. Um, Let's take that time. What I run into when I work with mainstream schools is, especially I get this a lot when I do like restorative practices stuff. Um, we don't have time for that. Like, because I, I try to tell them, you know, when you have an issue in a classroom, your dean or your principal or whoever you have should come and switch the teacher out and let the teacher deal with the student. Because that builds relationship, that builds trust. When the person that comes from the outside comes in, pulls the kid out, does whatever sort of, you know, thing that they feel needs to be done in the moment because they're really just looking to move on to the next thing. You know, I'm going to settle this kid down in five minutes because I don't want to deal with it. And then I'm going to send them back to class. And that way I'm done. I don't have to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. Um, well, the teacher loses authority because now the teacher is just a tattletale who calls somebody else in who's more powerful. And that person comes in and lays down a bit of punishment or some lecture or some threats or things like that. And then we move on about our day, but nobody takes the problem to go or the time to say, what's the real problem here? Like, what's really going on? And they'll tell you, we just don't have time. And so I tell them it's a systematic issue then. It's not an ability issue. You guys have the ability to do it. I just gave you eight hours of training on how to apply it. I'd be more than happy to come back, work in your school, do everything you need me to do. 
So it's a systematic issue. You don't have the time. And, you know, teacher unions and things like that, you know, teachers aren't going to go in on their break or their prep hour and meet with a kid and do something restorative. Um, They don't have enough staff to swap teachers out so the teacher can have a restorative conversation. So, I mean, it's a school system issue is really what it is. We don't hire enough people. We don't train enough people. And we don't give enough attention to all the trauma and all the psychological issues and all the the real things that are going on outside of education. We just kind of keep hoping that if we can get through today, then we'll start again tomorrow. And I think to myself, like, don't you want tomorrow to ever get easier? Like, do you just want to keep getting up and dealing with the same things every day? Or do you want to take some time, slow down, get to know your kids, build some relationships, deal with what's really going on, find some resources, tap into what that kid needs and their talents and things like that. And then all your tomorrows will get a little bit easier. And eventually your whole school will run a little bit better. So our mainstream schools then, I like the term machine that you use for them, Mm -hmm. because that implies that it's very rigid. Yeah. In the way that it moves. But I was having a conversation earlier today with somebody. And it seems to me that they've got everything all cockamamie now. Because the teachers used to be the ones who would take care of the kids. And the administration would support them in one way or another. We were talking about how we are having a difficult time seeing how the kids are even at the center of the school anymore and the what's the mission of the school and whether or not those are just words on paper or if there's actually a follow-through as far as serving the community, serving the children, and doing that as a, as a unified team where the paraprofessionals are supporting the teachers and the kids in the classroom – Teachers are doing the direct services, and then the admin help follow up with that and give support. And I see administrators who absolutely refuse to go into the classroom because that's not their job, because Mm -hmm. they've set up this hierarchy. And so I'm just wondering, have we really lost what school, quotes, um, really is and what it's truly about. Yeah, I I think it's a it's a system that doesn't work anymore. And typically systems adapt to society as we evolve and we move along and our needs, our wants change, where schools kind of been run the same way since, you know, since it started. And, you know, I don't have the cure. I don't have the fix. But I definitely I know that, um, you know, I I sat on a, a, a little group not too long ago, and they were talking about how do we attract more teachers? How do we get more teachers? And I kept saying, pay them more. And they're like, well, no, 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 we're not going to do that. What if we did this? And I was like, just pay them more. And like, okay, Joe, we're not going to pay them more. And I was like, well, then I'm not going to attend our next meeting because that's the simple, the first step is, is pay people more. But also looking at our system and figuring out, you know, are we about the kids or are we about test scores and education and things like that? Um, kids will learn if they're provided an opportunity to learn. And if you make that environment something that meets their needs, I think we're still sort of stuck in that idea that it's, you know, like back when I was a kid where it was very rigid and, you know, everybody was on the same team. If the kids didn't do what they were supposed to do, we were all allowed to beat them. And then they would fall in line 
and then they would do what they were supposed to do. And we don't live in that world anymore. We have a lot of kids that have a lot of trauma that are exposed to social media and all these different things that have huge effects on them. Uh, and instead of our system adapting to our kids and adapting to society and how it shifted, we're just going to keep doing the same thing. And then we develop these, we do develop these hierarchies where, you know, I'm in charge and you have to listen to me. And education, I, I think of as, is it's kind of a career without a country because we're one of the few careers, one of the few entities that's run by people who don't do what we do. So you think of like school boards and even political figures who make decisions about school law and school policy. They're not educators. And school boards are typically made up of upper middle class people who could afford to run for school board. And they're really more concerned about their kid who's in school. So they sit on school board while their little Susie or, or Sean is in school. And then once they get out of school, they're kind of like, I'm done. I just want to make it right for my kid while they were there. Well, your kid's the minority at this point. Um, most of those kids aren't upper middle class, dual parent income homes. And I'm not saying that's what everybody, every school board member is. But there's a lot of out of touch people who get to make laws and regulations and policies for schools who've never worked in a school. They don't, you know, they walk the halls in their suits and they go, oh, yes, yes, this looks great. Well, why don't you go into a classroom for 90 days, not 10 days, not 20 days, do a full 90 days in a classroom, you know, teacher prep, the whole nine yards. You can have the teacher hang out with you and help you. You'll be like a little student teacher for 90 days. I think they would change their perception and they would say, oh, my God, first of all, you don't have half of the things you need. Yeah. You don't have the support physically and you don't have the support like with other people that you need. I know schools should employ more people. Um I don't know why we don't. Well, I know why we don't employ more people because we don't pour money into education, and the money we do pour into education kind of trickles down into that hierarchy. You have people making a huge amount of money up here, and people making a tiny bit of money down here, and it's it's just I don't know how to fix it. Please, no politicians try to call me. I have no idea, but I think that the, we could do a heck of a better job, and I think that we could start by bringing educators to the table and asking them what do you need, and then saying. Let's start just pouring money into this and make sure the money's going to the right places and making this a better place because our kids aren't going to continue. It's going to get worse. They're just they're not equipped to function in something that was designed 80 years ago and hasn't been updated. Everything else in the world is updated except for our approach to education. Well, a <clears throat> couple of things. School boards don't always have parents. Yeah, sometimes they're just people from the community. They are people from the community, for the most part, who sometimes use it as a stepping stone for something bigger or because they just want to be a big fish in a little pond. Yeah. And then educational policy, as we found out a few weeks ago when we did our episode on education, who makes it, we know that less than 20% of educational policy makers actually have any experience in the classroom or as an educator, mm -hmm. which, and being an educator is a really loose term nowadays because I see all these people calling themselves teachers and educators, which is co-opting and a, misappropriating the term. I mean, everybody can be an educator because we all teach, but the term for the profession needs to be somebody who actually educates children directly, mm -hmm. I feel. And I don't see a whole lot of that happening outside of the classroom. 
So it's we're kind of gummed up and we're at the mercy of politicians and all these people who are, are get all ginned up because of the media, because of different whatever is happening. And they take their torches and pitchforks to the board meetings. And then we have all this fallout that happens. But I agree with you that we need to have people spend more time in the classroom. And I kind of like the idea of every five to seven years, every administrator needs to go back to the classroom for a full year. Yeah, I I would be fine with, I mean, I think that's great. I know what it's like. I worked as an education consultant in the way back and I lost touch with the kids. I worked with the kids little by little, but I didn't have that long-term relationship with them because I would be with them for a few days and then I was off to another school, another district doing something else. But I didn't really get to do a whole lot and I really missed that connection. And I think that's one of the things that that personally I don't want to lose. So I spend, my teachers would tell you like, you know, he's here all the time. Like he, you know, I swap them out to go to the bathroom. I cover their classes if they're sick or they're gone. Cause we don't really have a deep sub list in all, in all dead. Um, we kind of cover our own. So if somebody's gone, somebody else is covering that classroom. Um, but I think that myself and even my assistant director, I mean, uh, there's probably not a 45 minute window unless I'm in a meeting that I don't have a kid in my office sitting and talking with me or chatting with me or, I'm in the classroom talking to one of the kids. And I think that's helps to maintain that authenticity that I understand what's going on here. Um, because, you know, I taught in public school for quite a while and I can remember, gosh, I didn't see my administrator, but maybe once every couple of weeks. And then I was scared most of the time. I was like, Oh my God, why are they in my hallway? Um, I'm going to go in my classroom and tell the kids to be quiet because, you know, we got to make a good impression. Um, I, I agree. I think that, you know, there is that, you know, once they leave the classroom, they lose touch. And then so now you've got people who are out of touch who are running things. And then the people above them are completely out of touch. I mean, they they may not even have kids, you know. Um, so it's it's a really goofy system. And it boggles my mind that we haven't revamped it. We just keep keep plugging away. Even when it's not working, we all just look around and go, I don't know why it's not working. Well, probably because we haven't changed it. (laughs) And when you do try to change it, you have so much negative reaction and so much pushback because there's one thing that I've learned. Teachers hate change. Administrators hate change. And so even if you're trying to do something that's going to be more beneficial to the students and possibly less work, it's just changing, doing a slight tweak with the mindset, people just, they just fall apart because they need to make sure that the structures that they have in place stay in place because they can't deviate. And every teacher should be doing something new and innovative every single year, if not almost every single week or day, in order to keep the learning curve for themselves up. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps education exciting and fresh for everybody. Yeah. And and I would I would argue for the teacher's sake that I think the biggest reason they hate change is because it's always curriculum change and a new idea to tell them how to teach. 
um, I think they lack creative freedom. I mean, they have some, but it's like you can be creative and have fun if you keep it in these parameters. And so every year they say, we've got a new Mathway. We've got a new reading program. We've got a new social studies program. We've got a new way that we want you to teach. And so I think teachers just get sick of this idea that like every two or three years, you're telling me I have to do what I'm doing in a new way. Instead of just saying, you know what? You got a college degree. You seem relatively smart. Our state has laid out the standards. Make sure you teach all those and have fun. Uh, be creative. Do what you want. Uh, you know, we're going to put some weight and, and you know, looking at some assessment. I want to make sure your kids have growth. And, and we can measure growth in so many ways to show real, uh, just concrete growth intellectually with kids. But we base everything on like standardized tests. And so, you know, I need when I taught... <laughs> Let me tell you, when I taught the, the uh, social emotional kids, um, I would tell my principal, like, look, you can throw this standardized test at us, but I hope you're not hoping, you know, like praying on my scores because we would do the reading portion. And I knew my kids read well. We did novel studies and they read really well. And I'd say, OK, let's go ahead and begin the reading session. I'd say, OK, begin. And I'd have 90 percent of my class a minute later. Done. I was like, are you really, though? Do you feel like you read the whole thing? And they're like, yep, did my best, Mr. McQueen, promise. And I'm like, I feel like that was three minutes. I'm a quick reader. I'm like, are you though? Are you that quick? Okay, because you can't, you know, make them do it. There's certain, you know, parameters. I can't force them to go back. And I would think, well, our scores won't be that great for reading. And I would do the math as well. You know, the math, okay, guys, let's go ahead. Let's begin. And 10 minutes later, done, done with the math. I'm like, oh. There was like 130 questions. I answered all of them, Mr. McQueen, I promise. Remember, we promised we'd answer them all. I'm like, I appreciate that. I mean, thank you for answering all of them. But they weren't going to do that. Or I would have the kid in tears because he reads at a third grade level, but he's in seventh grade. And they're like, well, you have to take the seventh grade test. And I'm like, he can't read at seventh grade level. He's, it's going to frustrate and make him sad. Squash any confidence I've built in him in reading. You're going to destroy all that in one day. And give me the next seven days to rebuild this kid. I'm like, well, they have to do it. It's the law. What law? So, you know, I could measure growth academically and intellectually with my kids in a million ways. But we don't allow teachers freedom. It's, it's like a dictatorship. And then every school has its own little mini dictatorship that says you have to teach our curriculum our way within these, you know. And I think that's their biggest hate on change is the fact that it's always changing. They're always being told they have to do it this way. And and change for all humans is hard. The example I always give my staff is I say, hey, look, change is difficult. If it wasn't, I would have a six pack and guns. Like I would be ripped. I'm like, but I don't want to change my diet. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to do all that cardio. Oh my God, I don't want to do that. I'm like that's a lot of change and that's too hard. So I choose to be a little portly because I love ice cream. And I like to eat and I'm not willing to make those changes. Could I? I surely could. It would be super hard. It would be a whole life changing event for me. But it's easier to do what I do now. And, you know, change is difficult. If it was easy, like I said, we'd all be in great shape and, and, you know, be doing amazing things. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you're saying. So let's go into schools and how they deal with discipline. What forms do they normally use? I mean, we have expulsions, we have suspensions. 
What are the other forms that we have and what are the consequences for those? I think one of the greatest moves we made was to get rid of zero tolerance. That was a silly idea. Um, but I think most schools are still capitalizing on that punitive response. Um, if you do something, I have to take things away from you or put you in a place that, that you know, like in-school suspension is, is just turned into a corral of kids that aren't really doing anything academically or learning from their behavior. Um, Suspension is just silly, especially um, with, I think, you know, uh, home dynamics being so different than what they used to be. Uh, I always tell my teachers, you know, I was a, a pretty rough kid and I lived on my own through some of high school, um, you know, moved out my, my junior year. And, um, and I said, if I knew that I could get suspended for three days every time I told a teacher to F off, I would just come in every Tuesday and at the end of the day, I would tell a teacher to F off so I could have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off because then I would just hang out at my house and, you know, watch TV. We didn't have a lot of video game systems back then, but, you know, watch TV or run around town and get up to no good. I was like, that would have been great. I would I would I would have figured out how to manipulate that system perfectly. Um, so I think that the biggest thing that is missing in discipline is, is to take the discipline out of it and just call it learning. We're going to learn from our behavior. Um, you know, are there going to be, you know, I get this a lot when I do restorative practices because they'll say, so that's just nothing happens to them. No, they may have to do a restorative project. Um, I had a couple of kids do a restorative project last week and we had them watch a bullying video because they were bullying a kid. And then we had, um, them sit down and we came up with a series of questions that we wanted them to answer in written form. Um, and then we sat down and went over those questions with them and talked about the long-term and short-term effects of bullying and the, you know, the effects it has on people psychologically and had them put themselves in that position. Like, how would you feel if that happened to you? And come to find out it had for, you know, one of them was like, I've been there. And I'm like, how'd it feel? And he's like, it sucked. And I was like, you created kind of a sucky environment for another kid. Like, you know, you remember how that felt? You just made somebody else feel like that. You know, I don't want to make you feel guilty or bad about yourself. I'm just saying you have empathy towards that. You understand what that's like. And and then doing a sort of conversation with the student and saying, you know, now that we've talked about these things, they understand what was going on. I'm going to sit down with all three of you. We're going to. And I felt like that was far more effective than me bringing them in here, yelling at them about bullying, making them do you know, some punitive thing, um, they wouldn't have learned. Now, can I make kids, you know, I've had kids draw on desks. And so I've had them clean all the desks in the school. Um, and somebody might say, oh, well, you know, that's not okay. Well, no, it is because now they understand what it's like to have to be the person that has to clean up their writing on the desk, you know? So not everything has to be punitive. We don't live in a world where we can paddle kids anymore. And that was never effective anyways. That was more trauma inducing than anything, um, you know? I got whipped as a kid. I got, I got paddled three times in front of my entire class. And I mean, I don't, it was embarrassing. It's humiliating to be whooped in front of the whole class and then sent to sit at your desk. Um, you know, especially as a fourth grader and, but you know, that's what they did back then. And I think that we have to be more creative and more understanding and, you know, teach kids to learn from their behavior, because if I can learn to act differently, and if I can learn that my behavior affects other people, then I can change my behavior. Now, I know the argument would be about, well, what about the kid who doesn't care? Well, I can't make you care. OK, 
Okay. But I can at least, you know, I used to tell kids all the time, like, I can't control you, but I can control your environment. And, you know, if that means that I have to adjust your environment and maybe make you work with me for a couple days where I'm not mean to you, I'm not evil to you, I'm not super entertaining, um, but we can work one-on-one. And, you know, maybe if you're struggling being around other people, you can be around me and we can talk about why you struggle being around other people while you also do your math, English, science, social studies, history, you know. So I think we have to be more creative and I think we have to stop having that expectation that if I send a kid out of my classroom, they should come back crying or there should be some huge consequence or I should I should feel good or feel happy because something bad happened to them because that's the expectation. They they were mean to me, so punish them. Why not figure out why they were mean to you and what does mean look like for you? And why have you never explained that to the kid that that's, you know, we're not going to run into kids. I've worked with a, a lot of kids and I, I have come across very few who were truly like just sadistic. It's not that common. Is it? Yes, there are some pretty severe mental health issues where kids can be very cruel and mean. But I mean, it's so few and far between. Um, 98% of your kids, I just made that statistic up, by the way, um, are going to be probably decent human beings that can learn from their behavior. And the earlier you start it, the more empathetic they become. And then they become citizens who are more understanding of the world around them and the people around them. But you're not going to be able to stop a psychopath or change a psychopath, are you? No, but you're not going to come across. I would say if you taught, I've been doing this 25 years and I can honestly say one diagnosed um, and one that I'm quite sure he's, he's in jail for, for murder. Um, that were probably in that area of, of sociopathic, severe conduct disorder, um, you know. But I've worked in alt-ed and residential, and most of the kids I've come across are pretty good kids. They're not crazy, evil, mean, sadistic people. They're just kids who got a bad shake, who never learned how to, to process things, who have a ton of trauma. So they have a trauma response to things, which is, you know, really, uh, they need to learn some healthy coping skills around that and how to process that. But I haven't come across a lot of kids that were just like terrible people. It's just most of us aren't. Most of us are pretty good people. That's true. So what are the discipline methodologies that you use in alternative ed that we don't really see in the mainstream? Well, I don't have a lot of major issues, and I'm in alternative ed. We have a lot of proactive conversations with our kids. We make a goal to build relationships with our kids from the first day they step foot in the door. If we see one little thing out of line, we have a restorative conversation. We pull kids aside and say, what's going on, man? Like, what's up? What's happening here? And because we do that, we have a lot of conversations. And I know that's going to sound crazy to people. So you just talk to your kids all the time? Yeah, pretty much. I just talk to my kids all the time. I ask them a ton of questions about themselves. I get to know them. I build that trust level where they can let me know what's going on in their life and, and how I can help them. And that's what we do. We're just honest with them. We have great conversations with them. And I don't have a lot of major events. I mean, my students do what typical students do. You know, like we may have a kid throw a paper towel across the classroom. And I'm like, well, that's pretty average. I mean, we're going to have a conversation around that. We don't just don't go just ignore it. But I'm like, you know, if uh, you know, my middle school teacher and I were having a conversation and he was kind of struggling. It's his first year. He's like, they talk all the time. And I go, yeah, they're middle school. 
And I go, are they cussing? He's like, oh, no, no. And I go, are they having like really unhealthy conversations or saying inappropriate things? He goes, no, a lot of it's just kind of silly for the most part. They're just goofy. And I go, yeah. He's like, what do I do about that? And I go, you don't, that's a worldwide phenomenon with middle schoolers from all over the planet earth. Like that's what they do. I was like, are they getting their work done? He's like, yeah, they're getting a lot of stuff done. I mean, they, you know, they do well, they're taking notes and doing all that stuff. And I was like, I could just remind them that, you know, there's time and a place, but don't harp on them or scream at them because they're kids and they're going to do kids stuff, you know, and we don't have any major behavior issues. I mean, even the kids that were bullying the other kid, they weren't physically bullying him. What they'd done is they'd gotten together and they wrote on their arms, F this kid. And I was like, dude, guys, really? And so, and they did, wrote actual F, F him, not the F word. They just wrote F. And so they're like, at least we didn't cuss. And I'm like, no, I mean, we know what that means. But I mean, that's like a major incident in our school, which in reality, I'm in alt ed school. I've got a ton of kids here for behavioral issues. And that's the <clears throat> biggest issue I could tell you that we've had over the last two months is that, that right there. Other than that, I mean, I had a kid throw a juice box at a kid. We pulled them both out, had a restorative conversation. He was like, I didn't really mean to hit him. I meant to throw it over him. And he's like, well, but you did hit me, you know, and they figured out that it was a complete accident. And, you know, so, yeah, it sounds crazy, but we we get to know all our kids and we talk to them and we get to know them on a human level. I think the fact that you talk to them and you speak with them. Because. I've talked to principals who tell me, yeah, I speak to the kids. We have conversations and I ask the kids later. So have you ever been in there? And they say, well, yeah. And I say, okay, so tell me about your conversations. It's not a conversation. They get, they talk at us and then they say, do you understand what I'm saying? We say, yeah. And they say, okay, get out of here. Mm. So, so there's a huge difference. And I think people need to understand that. Kids want to have a voice. They want to be heard. And sometimes they'll act even worse after they've been with an administrator or a teacher who's just spoken at them because they're so frustrated because they weren't heard. They didn't understand why they couldn't be listened to because there was a good reason for whatever happened, at least in their mind, happened. Mm-hmm. I think that whenever I have a kid in my office, and I, I see my teachers do this as well, I think we we pride ourselves on how we start conversations. And again, it's never about us. And so whenever we have an issue, the, one of the first things we ask is, what's going on? Like, what just happened? Tell me your side. I'm curious. Like, tell me, tell me what you think went, what you, you know. But I have kids in my office. I'm like, why are you here? And they're like, you know why? And I'm like, well, I know why, but I want to know why you think you're here. I want to hear your side of things. I want to hear what was going on. Like, tell me. I'm, and then, you know, active listening, a simple thing, paraphrasing, asking, you know, curiosity questions, kind of just simple stuff. Like, well, why did you throw a juice box? And it's like, well, I went to throw it at the kid behind him because he's my friend to get his attention. It hit him in the head. Do you think it's, I mean, are we supposed to throw juice boxes? You know, no. So you were throwing it at your friend because you thought it would be fun. Yeah. I'm like, all right. And how'd that work out? Well, I hit the other dude in the head and he got all pissed off. I'm like, totally. Do you think he should be mad? Well, yeah, I hit him in the head with the juice box. Just having those basic conversations, you know, they know what happened. They're not oblivious. They're, you know, 
and they can own their part. And then you can say, okay, now that we know what happened and you basically know what you could have done differently. I, I don't have kids that often. They're like, I don't know. What could have I done differently? Almost the majority of the time, they're like, I probably could have done this differently. I'm like, okay. I mean, you could have. It is what it is. It's over now. So now we got to talk about what do we do moving forward? We can't rewind and go redo that. But we can make amends. We can do something with this information that we have and, and build, you know, build on it. So what do we do? What do you think we should do? I ask the kids all the time, what do you think we should do? What do you think our next step is? And it's surprising how often they're like, I should probably apologize. I'm like, yeah, but apology is more than just a word. It's an action. So what does apology look like for you? When you apologize moving forward, what's that look like for you back in the classroom? And having them do that sort of metacognitive thinking and that planning, it's because it's not about me. I could tell you what to do. I mean, I'm really good at solving problems. For Pete's sakes, I'm, I'm fantastic at it. But if I solve all your problems for you, you're never learning how to do that yourself. And so having those conversations and taking the time and pausing and not thinking, I've got a bunch of stuff to do. I got to move on to the next thing. I need to douse this little fire, although there's still a bunch of embers that are red hot. And I'm going to send you off with those red hot embers. And dear God, hopefully nobody blows on that. You know, I, let's make sure that we handle the whole problem, deal with the whole child, deal, bring things full circle. And then it makes a huge difference. And that also goes to what you talk about in the book as KYK. Know your yeah. kids. Know your kid. Definitely. So, Do you actually say kick? No, no, no. I actually, I tell people, <clears throat> um, I tell my teachers all the time, like, what do you know about them? Just curious. And they'll say, well, I know this, 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 and that, and this. And I'm like, what, based on that information, what's your perception of, of what's going on with them? And then if they say, I don't know, I'll say, have you asked them? No. Well, why don't you ask them? Like we have this idea that we can't be honest with kids and we, we 100% can be honest with kids all the time. Like they can handle it. You know, we don't want to dump huge, heavy things on them in a very non-therapeutic way, but we could totally be honest with kids and just say, man, you're off today. What's going on? Like, what do you need from me? Do you need to talk to some, you know, cause we don't always have to be the savior. We could say, do you need to talk to so-and-so? I know you got a great relationship with them, you know, but just being honest with kids. I, we started a, I know this is kind of a, a side note, but we started a GED HSE program at my school. Um, about a year after I got here, because I would get referrals with kids that were like 17, 18 with one credit. And so the school would send them to me and be like, go there. McQueen can graduate you. And I would have to look them in the eye and go, no, I can't. You're 18. You have one credit. But I don't want to turn you away. And so we had a GED program with our adult ed program that was attached to our, our services. So I asked my boss, can I just hire my own GED teacher? And these kids that get referred, get them in a work program, get them set up with a, we do a thing that with uh, some of the local uh, community colleges to get them like, you know, different certifications and stuff. But look, can I put them on the express route to do some of those community college things and just get them a GED? Because I'm not going to lie to a kid. I'm not going to bring a kid in here who's 17 with one credit and lie to them and say, sure, buddy, stick around. I'm going to sit down and go, look, man, let's be honest with each other. You're not a big fan of school. Okay. Based on your attendance, you've shown up 60% of the time in four years, which, you know, not terrible, but not great. You have one credit and it's in PE. So good job. You pass PE. Um, you need a lot more and I can't give them to you. But what I can do is put you in a program where if you put your head down, you do what we ask you to do. 
in 90 days, you can have a GED or a high school equivalency, you know, high set test. And then I can get you hooked up with either we can get you enrolled in like community college as a regular student, or we can look at welding. We can look at woodworking. We can look at certified nursing assistant. We can look at some different programs and get you going there. So look, man, in 90 days, dude, you could be done with high school. You never have to do it again. Look, most people, you're going to live to be 98. Okay. You graduate high school by 18. You got 80 years to do whatever the hell you want to do. I just want to make those 80 years productive. So let's get you a high school. Let's get you a high school equivalency. And let's get you started on track to start a career. But I'm not going to lie to you and look you in the eye and tell you that you can graduate because that's not true. And I have more respect for you as a human than to tell you a story that's We can be honest with kids. Oh, yeah, we can. I What I don't advocate for, though, is there was an incident where a staff member got in a kid's face mm. and the kid got back in the in that staff member's face and the staff member said you will respect me <laughs> and the kid said i don't respect you and i don't have to respect you i will respect these people but not you and so they took that kid into a room and basically told that kid all the confidential information that they had on this kid and the kid just sat there and said so and they said I want you to apologize to me now. And the kid said, not until you apologize to me. Well, that wasn't going to happen. So the staff member came out, came in and talked to me and said, what are you going to do about this? And I said, well, you kind of did some of the wrong things that you shouldn't have been doing. And to be quite honestly, and to be quite honest, the other kids believe that you have been targeting these kids in the class. And so that was kind of like them telling you, knock it off. I will not be spoken to that way. And I said, but that's how you speak to them. So let me talk to the kid and then maybe we can have you sit down and have a conversation with him with with, with a moderator who's there between you. We just come to an agreement or something. No, I will not. They need to come to me and apologize or I will not work with them again. And the kid looked at me and said, I'm willing to apologize. I know what I did was wrong, but I need them to own up to what they did. Mm -hmm. And it never happened. It never happened. That staff member absolutely refused. And yet walks around talking about how we do restorative justice. Mm. And so it's, I think that we need to have people be a little more self-aware that they can't bandy these things about, but they have to be part of the solution as well. And sometimes you have to take your medicine. I know I've done it so many times over 40 years. So, but some people just cannot. And I think those are the people that can't leave it at the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, if you're going to be an educator, it's a lot of ego checking because you have to, again, it's not about you. Like um, I tell my teachers all the time, I, our kids get an endless supply of respect and dignity and their respect and dignity bucket is refilled every morning when they show up. 
We will never be disrespectful and we will never treat them without dignity. Will they be disrespectful to you? Yes, but cognitively and developmentally, they're in a different place than you. So you can look at them and think in your mind, I totally get that because, you know, you're not always somebody who thinks rationally. Like you're a teenager and based on brain development, you think very irrationally and you're driven by emotion and impulse. And I can understand that and I can forgive you for that because if I stay patient and I'm respectful to you, you will be respectful to me. I, I had a kid not too long ago. He had a vape on him. And I, God, I hate the vapes. I just put that up there. It's the worst thing in the world. But uh, refusing to give it to the teacher. And he came in and I've known him for a couple of years. And I'm like, look, dude, do we have to do a pat down and get all weird and uncomfortable and have a long conversation about it? Or he just give you the vape. And uh, so he gives me the vape. And I go, okay, thank you. And I go, man, I go, let me ask you, are you supposed to bring a vape to school? And he goes, no. And I said, let me ask you this. Have I ever in your two years that we've known each other, disrespected you or treated you badly? He's like, no. And I go, can you have a little bit more respect for me and not bring a vape to school? And he kind of stopped for him and it was like, I mean, yeah, I guess. I didn't know it was like a way of disrespecting you. And I go, it's not, I mean, I don't feel sad that you brought a vape to school. I go, I'm not going to go home and have, you know, like a sad little cry. I go, but dude, it's the rule. And it's the rule that I have to enforce and you're not old enough to have a vape. I know the cops aren't going to stop you. They're not going to write you a ticket. It is what it is. I go, but man, look, dude, if you can just not like leave it at the door, hide it in the alley, like, come on, be more creative, you know, but don't bring it to school. And he's like, I could do that. But if you have that level of respect for them all the time, um, it's not about us. It's not about whether or not we get respected. If you give them respect and you are polite to them and you work with them and you get to know them then yes. Um, but in the beginning, no, that's the hard part. That's the work that has to be put in is, you know, you get new kids. And at the beginning of the year, you just have to assume like, I'm going to have to put up with a whole bunch of stuff and build a lot of relationships and swallow my pride and check my ego a million times. Because if I do what I'm supposed to do and I build these relationships and I do some proactive things and I treat this kid with respect, three months from now, we're going to have a perfect well-oiled little relationship that is kind of a, a really respectful give and take with things. And I think the students usually, even if they won't back down and you leave it where you didn't get upset with them and they walk out, they will come back and they will apologize eventually. Mm -hmm. They will do some kind of atonement. Yeah. I mean, they're impulsive. It's just, you know, when I, when I do de-escalation, I talk about trauma and brain development. And I just want to remind people that, you know, teenagers' brains are in a different place than yours. They they don't think rationally. I'm not saying they're, you know, um, like crazy, irrational people, but they're kind of crazy, irrational people. Like they, they're very impulsive. They're very emotional. Um, they're very overanalytic of how the world sees them. Um, they definitely uh, put a whole heck of a lot of weight and peer interaction and peer acceptance. And, you know, they, they will, the, they'll die on the top of that hill rather than be lose face in front of their peers. And, you know, understand that and understand they see the world differently. And the best conversations you're going to have with them are away from everybody. And when they're calm, I, there's a lot of times where I've told kids, even restorative conversations between kids, I'm like, we're not going to do it today because neither of you are in a good place. And I can respect that. It would probably take me a while to cool down and get myself in a better place. So we're going to separate you guys for the day. But tomorrow morning, when you guys get here, we're probably going to sit down and have a conversation. 
And I've told kids the same thing with me. Like, look, you're super heated at me right now. And I get that. I respect that. I can understand you're angry. Okay. And, and I can respect your anger. Okay. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to give you some time. And what I'll do is I'll check in with you at the end of the day or tomorrow morning. And I'll see if we're at a place where we can have a conversation. And if we're not, just tell me we're not. It's okay with me. It's not going to offend me. I'm patient. I can wait for you to be ready. And, you know, you do that once or twice and it makes a huge difference. Then third, fourth time you have an interaction with that kid, they know that they can trust you and that you'll be patient and that you respect them and they'll calm down quicker and they're ready to have that, that conversation faster. I think adults have a hard time checking their ego. Like it's not about you. Check your ego. If, if you got into this because you wanted to boss kids around, like I said, there's a lot of different jobs you could do, you know? True. Now let's switch and tell me, because you talk about using positive peer culture. Yes. That's based on Vorath and Brentro, 1974. I used positive peer culture when I was working in the one-room schoolhouse with my residential kids. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine using that in an open kind of school like what you have, because all the counseling aspects, everything that the residents did was based on positive peer culture. So we continued it on in the school. How do you do that? How does it work? And if you could just give us some, give the listeners and the viewers an idea of what positive peer culture is, and then how you would implement that in your program, or do you? Yeah, we well, we're starting to. Um, we've been talking about it for a while, and I think that once you've established a good restorative um, atmosphere, you can start to incorporate positive peer culture. So really what positive peer culture is, is it's allowing students to be leaders, it's allowing students to do like, um, to come up with interventions, allowing students to intervene other kids in a therapeutic, helpful, not hurtful way, creating leaders out of kids, and then allowing them to develop that leadership and develop that voice to influence other kids in a positive way. So first you have to establish a leadership process. Who are we going to choose as our leaders? What's that going to look like? And then there's a lot of training around that, like how to encourage them to communicate just the general expectations of the school. But when I first started using this, I would use it in my classrooms. I had kids switch classes. And I would typically find really my sort of what I call like the most powerful voice in the classroom, the one kid that all the kids will listen to. And I would start having conversations with that kid about how they really are charismatic. They really have a great leadership vibe that's just natural leadership and just just have conversations around leadership and what that looks like and what they feel like, what kind of leader they would be and what they think expectations in our classroom would be. And once I was able to build a good relationship with that student, I could have all the kids come in and I could just look at that student and say like, hey, Susie, does it seem loud in here? And that's it. They would stand up and say, hey, guys, excuse me, can we focus up to Mr. McQueen real quick and everybody get in their seats? And then everybody would get in their seat and sit down. And then I would, you know, I didn't have to go high five them or anything like that. But at the end of class, I'd be like, hey, I appreciate you helping me out, man. That made a big difference. Thank you. Like, again. You got a lot of charisma. You got a lot of leadership skills. You got to tap into those because you could do amazing things. Um, and that's just in one classroom. Now, when you start developing leadership in your schools, then you can start using those kids in a way where you give them some freedom. I wouldn't say using them, but allowing them to be 
part of your process, you know, um, and they become people who can sit in on restorative conversations. They become people who, when a kid is struggling, I can say, do you want me to call Kyle, who's another kid? And maybe Kyle can have a conversation with you real quick. So you can use the kid that's a little bit older to talk to a kid that's a little bit younger um, and just, you know, high school to junior high or high school to elementary even. Um, and you teach those kids what it's like to be a mentor. You teach them what it's like to be a leader. But you also want to take your kids with a little bit of a quieter voice and team them up with some of your leaders to give them some confidence and to allow them to develop their voice as well. So it's it's an interesting dynamic, but um, it makes a huge difference, especially, I mean, just the simplest thing is establish a school leadership team and allow them to have some control. Now, they're not going to run around telling kids to sit down and be quiet and telling them that they're suspended and any of that nonsense. But if you have a major incident with four or five kids, you might bring those four or five kids in and two or three of your leaders and say, let's all sit down and do a circle together. Now, having that peer influence makes a huge difference. And, and you know, I tell people like, whenever I do trainings, I, I don't mean to break people's hearts, but I always say like, how many of you guys have kids that are 12 and older? And if they raise their hands, I go, well, you're kind of done raising them. Um, their peers have taken over. Around 12, their peers have more influence than you. And I said, you know, I'll give you an example. I could buy a pair of brand new Air Jordans. Um, now my kids are all grown, they're out of school. But when my kids were in high school, I could have bought a brand new pair of Jordans and wore them home and told my kids, check out my kicks. They're like, lame, you're lame. Like old man in, in stupid shoes. Now, one of their friends could have bought the same pair of shoes and worn them. And they'd have been like, oh my God, dad, you've got to get me these pair of shoes. And I'd be like, well, those are the same ones I have. But you look dumb in them. Like, don't wear yours the same day I wear mine. Like their peers have a way bigger influence than we do. And so you get kind of a twofold win here. One win is that you get to take kids who have that natural charismatic leadership ability and teach them how to use that to grow and be positive and apply it to, you know, even a work world and professional situations and really tap into that because they're, they're the kids that are opportunities are going to be, you know, doors are just going to fly open for them based on the fact that they're super charismatic and funny and people are drawn to them, you know, but I would rather you, run a small company than run a large gang. Um, so you get to teach those kids how to tap into that just natural, you know, ability and talent. And you also get to have kids bought into your program and bought into what you're doing. And they genuinely are bought in because you're bought into them. Like I've bought into you enough to give you a voice and respect that voice and, and take into consideration what you share and also give you some opportunities to lead some kids and help out with some things, it, it changes the dynamic if it's done correctly. Now, I've seen it done really poorly, too, where you've got your group of leaders and they run around like a bunch of little dictators screaming at people all the time, and then staff backs them up on it, like, you heard what he said. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So now we have bullies that are helping the bullies bully the kids. Like, this is terrible. We've got, like, two levels of bullies. We've got grown ones and half-grown ones. Um but if done correctly and done in a way that's supportive and therapeutic and really tapped into that restorative process, it, it can be hugely effective. How do you stop the corruption? Uh, you just, and I mean, you call it out. I, so I would just tell kids like, you know, um, I'm not, if I had an issue or something going on and they're like, I want to help. I'm like, mm, I don't think you help therapeutically all the time. I feel like you're kind of mean to people. Like, I would just be honest with them, you know, like 
My job's not to yell at other kids, and your job is surely not to yell at other kids. So I'm going to go find somebody who I think does a little bit better job at this. I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you on how I think that could look. But right now, in this moment, you're just not the right person for me. Do you think maybe that might come from insecurities on their part? It, it could be, but I think that it comes from one. The only time I've seen it happen is it comes from adults allowing them to, because they're kids, they can't handle high levels of power. Um, you know, most adults don't handle high levels of power. So it's not, it's giving them too much power rather than empowering them to have a voice and help other people. Um, when you turn it into you have ultimate power to do whatever you want, well, that's kind of corruptive. But if you tell them you have the power to have a voice that's shared, as long as it's being helpful, we welcome it. Then it, it teaches them, you know, it, it takes work and it takes time to to really work with those kids and, and talk about leadership and what that looks like. Okay, so let's go into restorative practices. Yes. Because this keeps coming up. And I think that positive peer culture is kind is in in some ways it works hand in hand with restorative justice. I agree. And I think that they're just so perfectly matched. So explain the intent behind restorative justice, why people might have an issue with it, and why it works so well. Well, I think the, the biggest issue I, I think people have with it is it's not punitive enough for them. They want it to be punitive. Um, and it's just that's not the idea behind restorative practices. And and restorative practices, I mean, historically, has been around for, you know, a long time. I mean, it could trace it back to tribes on every continent um, who did some sort of restorative practice. And it's the goal of it is to learn from what you've done and then make amends where amends needs to be made and then move forward knowing that you can do something differently next time. And so... Um, Again, I think the problem people have is it's not punitive. I think the hard part about incorporating it is it takes time, it takes energy, and it takes human beings to do work. And um, that's the biggest, I think, uh, complaint or kickback I get from people is how are we ever going to have find time to do this? And like anything, if it's important to you, you'll find time, you'll make time. And, you know, having those conversations and building different sort of thought processes and thought patterns for kids. And there's a lot of different restorative project things that kids can do. You know, um, there's a lot of things you can tap into in the community. There's a lot of things you can have kids do around the school, um, you know, doing just restorative conversations or restorative circles is, is a huge thing. Um, I think people get freaked out about a little bit of it. Like, like our teachers are taught your circles at the beginning of the year should be completely benign. Like they're not emotional circles. They're like, let's all introduce ourselves. The next circle might be, let's talk about what we enjoy to do on Fridays. If we have a Friday fun, you can use it to introduce a topic like, Hey, we're going to talk about fractions. Let's do a circle. Tell me what you love and don't like about fractions and tell me what you know and don't know about fractions. Like you could totally do a KWL circle, but you need to make them so that there's a norm around people sitting in circles, sharing thoughts, and then you'll get to the, okay, our class is struggling as a whole right now. We've got a lot going on. Let's circle up and figure out what's going on. 
but you can't start your first circle with, you know, let's all sit around in a circle and I want you to tell me if you have trauma and what it's about. Like, whoa, oh my gosh, you can't do that. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you have to take the time, but you also have to be willing to adapt it. Like I've told English teachers, if you're going to read a book, do a circle and say, we're going to read To Kill a Mockingbird. Has anybody ever heard of this book? What do you know about it? Okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit about one of the characters. This is what Atticus is. He's a lawyer and this is what he does. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Build some curiosity. Like circles don't always have to be, you know, and restorative conversations don't always have to involve 50,000 people. It can just be you and the kid. It can be the kid and another kid while you stand back and just monitor the conversation or guide them or praise them. Like, guys, that was great, man. You guys problem solved like nobody else, man. I'm super proud of you guys. That was amazing. Do you bring so, in paraphrasing into that conversation as well? So if you have two, if you have two kids in positive peer culture, it'd be two peers who'd be one would say, This is this is how I felt when you did or said this, because and then they just say whatever. The other one is taught to paraphrase, not to parrot phrase mm-hmm. and then they come back at them and say that and then they say they take it in and our kids were pretty well versed in it you could tell if they were just going through the motions yeah because then you could be a little more probative but then they would basically say okay here is what you need from me here is what i can do this is what i'm willing to do and then can we move on? And then everything wraps up. Mm-hmm. I think I feel statements are great in the beginning because they're really generic and they're a great springboard. Um, but I think you want to get away from them, but not away from the context of them. So if I'm with kids that are a little bit older, then I'll say, look, here's the deal. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a conversation. Only one person gets to talk at a time. When Jared is done talking, We're going to pause. We're going to think. And then, Mark, I want you to tell me what you got from that. What do you think he's trying to tell you in your own words? So basically, I'm telling them to paraphrase without telling them to paraphrase. And then that kid will talk and we'll pause. And I'm like, all right, process that. I don't pause like, let's wait 30 seconds. I just said, process that. Are you good? What do you feel like he was trying to tell you? Now, remember, he had something to say. I want you to tell me what you heard, what you got from that. And that's me basically prompting them to paraphrase without using the terms paraphrase. And then when they're done, I'll ask the other kid, do you feel like that's accurate? Do you feel like he understood what you were saying? And if they say no, I'll go, okay, let's try again. Like explain it differently maybe for us so that we can understand. Um, And so I put myself on each kid's side so we can understand. And so now the kid doesn't feel alone or dumb, like explain it again because he didn't get it. That's kind of you know, belittling, but I'm like, all right, explain it so we can understand better. And I'm like, all right, what do you feel like you got out of that? And then ask them, do you feel like that's what he said? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Now you go and see if we can figure out what's going on. So, I mean, it it is a lot of, you know, walking and handholding in the beginning to make them better communicators and to teach them to pause and to listen for purpose and um, teaching them to paraphrase without teaching them like, like when I do trainings with teachers, I teach them to paraphrase and then I have them practice, um, you know, because it's a training. I'm not in the middle of training if I'm having a restorative conversation. 
but I kind of am because I'm training them on how to have a healthy, restorative conversation. If I can get them good at it, it makes my life easier later because then I can just say, hey, why don't you guys have a restorative conversation? And if they've done a few of them, I can just kick back and watch it happen and jump in when I need to. Like, whoa, whoa, you're interrupting. Hold on. Remember the rules? You got to wait till they're done. I couldn't help but think about restorative justice and the negative implications people have associated with it. And yet there's the movie like The Mighty Ducks, which mm-hmm. is based on restorative justice. Yeah. That became so popular. There's a great right. book out there called Touching Spirit Bear. Um, I used to have my junior high kids read it, and it is 100% restorative justice. And, and, um, and, and it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing book at the end. I mean, it, goes, it really does go full circle and deals with trust and nobody believing you. And, you know, the kid's a little criminalistic and, and probably has some pretty severe behavior and trauma issues, but, um, but it's a great book, simple read. Young kids can read it. I used to have my middle school kids read Touching Spirit Bear all the time. I probably have 10 copies laying around the, my schools. Wow. I'll have to look at it. The last thing that I want to cover with you, and this is the biggest, this is the biggest umbrella that you have in the book, and that's relationships. Yeah. So what is it about relationships that people, teachers, administrators, just people in general don't get? Because I know tons of people who say, how do you build a relationship? And it's really interesting that they would even ask that kind of a question. Mm -hmm. So... What's your advice on how do you build relationships and and why are they the core of everything that we do? Well, I think, you know, building relationships with with students and with kids that we work with is very different than building relationships like outside of work, like a friendship, Um, because friendships are very reciprocal. It's a very give and take. Um, You know, I get but I give and um, and there's a higher level of trust on those. You know, I share what I feel I can share. And it takes time, but you're building a very high level of trust and a friendship. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot of energy and effort and time spending to each other. And there are certain things that attract you to each other. You share the same beliefs or, or core values or, or even hobbies, you know. Um, that's a whole different world that, um, you know, and, and that's not how it is with, with school kids. With school kids, it's I'm going to build a relationship with each and every single kid. And the biggest part of that is it's a give, 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 not a take, take, take. Um, First of all, I don't want to share anything with them. Um, I tell especially people who work with high school kids or junior high kids, anything you say can and most likely we will be used against you at some point. Um, So don't share your personal information. Please don't share your trauma or any terrible thing that's happened to you. Keep it pretty superficial. Make it about the kid. Um, I want to know more about you. Like, what's going on with you? What can I do for you? And so the relationship is all about you having an open door and an open mind for them to build trust and be reliable and be that solid object um, because you want them to trust you for good reason, because you should be trustworthy. You don't want them to trust you as like a game of manipulation. You want them to trust you because you can be trustworthy. And when they trust you, then they're willing to open up to you. And when you are genuinely caring and, and concerned about their well-being, then they feel safe. 
And if kids feel safe and they feel like they can trust you, the relationship will happen pretty organically. Um, you have to pretend sometimes because kids tell us things that we're not interested in. Um, and we have to, if it's important to them, it's important to me. And so if it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to me. I, I, I tell a story about my daughter in a purple brush all the time when I do trainings. But uh, I also talk about how sometimes kids will come to us with, I had a kid come to me and he lost his, his uh, PlayStation 4 or whatever they're up to now, 5, I don't know. And I know he's a big gamer. That's his whole world, for God's sakes. He gets out of school, he games until 1 in the morning. And uh, so he comes to school and he's super mad. And I'm like, oh, dude, what's up, man? I go, you look super pissed, man. Rough weekend. And he goes, my parents took my effing game uh, PlayStation. I go, oh, my God. I go, dude, that's your world, man. I go, that's how you connect with all the people, I don't know, probably around the world at this point. I was like, I don't get PlayStation, but I know you all can get online and do whatever. And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, man, why'd they take it? And he said, well, because I didn't come home. I'm like, what do you mean you didn't come home? And he's like, well, you know, I went out on Friday with my friends and I just didn't come home till Sunday. And I'm like, dude, you just didn't come home for like 48 hours. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I go, I'm glad you're safe, man. I don't, I don't want to know what you were up to. Okay. But I'm glad you're safe. I can imagine your parents are freaking out, dude. And he's like, yeah. And they took my PlayStation. I said, like, man, that sucks. They took your PlayStation. Now I'm thinking in my mind, hundred percent, they took your PlayStation. I probably would have thrown it out the window and smashed it. You let one of my kids, but I want to sympathize with him, but I'm also thinking, I'm like, man, I mean, when do you get it back? Well, like in a week. And I'm like, that's not bad. Like you could handle a week, right? I go, dude, yeah, your PlayStation, you love that. That's a big deal to you, man. Why do you think they took it though? Do you think it's just because you didn't come home for 48 hours? Yeah. Do you think a week is too long or do you think a week is fair? Like, what's your thoughts on that? And it's amazing how often they're like, I mean, I guess it's kind of fair. They understand. But I don't want to go, well, yeah, of course they took your PlayStation because you didn't come home for 24 hours. I would have freaked out if I was you. I would have, you know, I'm like, I want to sympathize with like, oh, my God, the PlayStation. Oh, you know, if it's serious to them, it's serious to me. And even when it's not serious to me, like I'm happy he lost his PlayStation in reality. I'm like, hell yeah, good. You know, but I want to be that person that's like, oh, my gosh, because I understand how important it is to them. Um, so we have to do those things. We have to pause and take a minute and relate with them and understand them and ask those questions about them. I mean, all of us as humans love to talk about ourselves. It's just, we get conditioned not to, um, you know, cause you're braggadocious or arrogant, or that's all you talk about is you. So we get conditioned over time not to, but if people ask us about ourselves, we love to share. And so take that time and ask the kids about themselves, you know, not intrusive questions. That's too much, but you know, the little things, it, it, it makes a difference. And that relationship is going to change your entire world with that kid. And some kids are hard to have relationships with. Some kids, I tell teachers, look, you're not going to like every kid that comes across your path. You're a human being. You're not going to love and like all the human beings you come in contact with. But if you don't like a kid, they should never know. They should think that by golly, you just think they're the bee's knees. And if that means that you come in and you have to put on your, your thespian face, you got to put on that mask and do a little acting, then you act your butt off, okay? At the end of the year, they'll go away. That's what happens. They go to another grade. And you can say, okay, I did a really good job. But by no means should they ever know that you go home at night and go, oh, my God, Joe. Ugh! You know, it shouldn't happen. They should feel equally as appreciated as all the other kids, and you should make equal effort to have a relationship with them in fact, that's probably your bigger challenge. Think of it as a challenge. What am I going to do? 
Great advice. Okay. Now, your book. Yes. We've been talking about a lot of the ideas in the book and things that you put out, the things that you give trainings on. Where can people buy it? It is on Amazon. If you just go on Amazon and you put Calming Young Minds by Joseph McQueen, it'll pop up and you can read it. And then I give a review. Um, Unless you're going to give one star, then just keep that to yourself. You can email me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's available. It ships pretty quickly. I, I think that I designed it to be a really easy read. For people. I also put little um, projects in there so you could use it as a book study if need be. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit fun. It's not, you know, 900 pages. You could do it in like a week or two and carry it around your back pocket. I was able to read it in 48 hours. That's good. But I'm a fast read and it was it was just absolutely affirming everything that I knew. And I still learned a lot. It's Good. always nice to have reinforcement, but there's always there are always these other takeaways that you can take with it. So, you know, and Philip, he was, I'm sorry that he couldn't be here today, but he was talking about how he just thought it was one of the best books he's read as far as working with our students. Oh, wow. It's clear. It, it talks about what we need to know. And it's just there. And so it's in a conversational kind of language. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading it. And I am putting all your information down in the show notes. Oh, good. And I'm also putting them up here for the YouTubes. And, And so I just, I is there anything else that you want to leave us with before you go? Um, I guess my only shameless plug would be I do have an LLC, Therapeutic Perspectives. I come out to schools. I'm more than happy to spend two or three days with you and really walk through these things with with your staff, even willing to come out and walk around your school and hang out and give you some just observation on on culture and climate among the students and teachers and things like that. Um, I just, I, I think that, you know, long term, I'd just like to try to teach all the teachers to approach education um, from a different lens and, and, and administrators as well. Like there's a different way we could be doing this. It's a lot more therapeutic. And it, you know, if you do it, it, it will minimize your problems in your school, especially if, if you do it right. If you do it with integrity and patience, because it's hard, change is hard. Again, I would have a six pack and abs or, you know, big muscles, but if, if you put in that work, that self-work and that change and really make it part of your culture, it, it makes a difference. I mean, I run an alternative school. I've got 140 kids and we have minimal incidents. Our incidents are, I mean, the things that we, we get hyped up about, I think to myself over the years, I'm like, this is nothing. Like you guys are all excited because we don't have that many incidents. And we had a kid knock over a chair and cuss like, ah, like that's not that big of a deal. We had it happen once and you guys are freaking out. We'll be okay. It sounds like the problems that you have are minimal. They are, but there's a lot of work that's done proactively to keep them minimal. When I first got here uh, to this school, it was, yeah, it was not good. 
a very mob mentality, kids fighting, uh, breaking things, coming in, you know, under the influence of drugs, throwing chairs, fighting teachers. Um, we just don't have that anymore. It just doesn't, I mean, I don't even have kids fighting kids. Not that I'm, you know, minimizing that, but they don't even fight each other. They come talk to an adult and then we have a sort of conversation. So maybe that's another conversation we can have about how do you go in and change a school culture to take it from being toxic to being therapeutic? Time and patience. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of monitoring and follow through. Um, And sometimes you got to remind people that maybe they would be better somewhere else. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I am going to say to all of our listeners, have a great week. We will see you later. And until then, adios.